Welcome to the Commentary Magazine podcast. Today is Friday, October 22nd, 2021. Although I must confess, in fact, as we I'm talking to you, it's actually Thursday. Noah doesn't like when I do this because I'm like showing you the mechanic. It's actually Thursday afternoon, October 21st, 2021. As I'm talking about this, the reason I'm mentioning this is in case something happens between Thursday afternoon and Friday morning. When you listen to this, you will understand why we if are Chappelle not like gets sitting taken on top down, of the You'll know if why Chappelle we were gets on taken it. down. And that's one of the things we need to talk about here with today's guest, author, uh, uh, joining uh, yes, yesterday's guest, uh, David Zucker, and uh, previous guests, Tevi Troy and, and Wilfred Riley, um, contributor to our Woke the Threat special issue, The Pride of Squirrel Hill, Barry Weiss. <laughs> Hi, Barry. Hi, guys. I'm excited to be here. So uh, Barry Weiss, uh, of course, uh, made herself a national figure by her through her resignation from the New York Times on the grounds that the New York Times had become a, a stultifying and increasingly totalitarianizing uh, institution actively seeking to suppress rather than uh, suppress views rather than allow multiplicity of views. And this has now led her to her own publishing business, which you can find on Substack, where apparently 200 billion people are now subscribing to not your, enough. It's still not your, enough. It's never enough for you. <laughs> it's never enough for you. Common sense, your Substack, in which you write, and then you increasingly are, are, it's a kind of online magazine in which people who are being canceled, people who are threatened with being canceled, people who have had the experience of trying to fight against being canceled, and all of that are finding a place and a voice. And with me to talk to you about this, of course, as ever, uh, are the irritated uh, associate editor, Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. <laughs> Hi, John. Noah just doesn't like it when I talk about the mechanics of putting together the podcast. It is theater of the mind. We must keep the curtain drawn at points. Okay. For the audience. There we go. Uh, <laughs> uh, senior writer, Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. I, I do have to make one correction on your introduction of Barry. Yes. Some of us discovered Barry through her excellent reported pieces and writing in the New York Times. And then she happened to then leave the Times. Well, but a lot of us liked her before that. I don't want to. Thank you, Christine. I don't want to. Thank you, Christine. I am not my canceling. I don't want to trump you, Christine. I mean, I knew Barry when she was in college yet. So when she was an activist in college, fighting against the encroaching anti-Semitism of the Oriental Studies Department at Columbia University, which she attended. And and that was uh, where it became clear that she was full of the quality that uh, is central to the piece that she wrote for us and a quality that is a difficult one to 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 assert that others need to have it, which we'll talk about uh, the quality of courage. And uh, one of the editors of that piece, of course, our final podcaster today, uh, executive editor, Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Ooh, my voice is a little, a little off. <laughs> that was Hi, very uh, that was very Clint Eastwood there. Yeah. So, Barry, uh, in your in your the article that you have written for our issue um, is titled excuse me, we got here because of cowardice, we get out with courage. And I want to talk to you a little bit because it's a it's a real overview of the entire world of wokeness and the imposition of its uh, increasingly, uh, as I say, sort of totalitarianizing doctrine that uh, Abe first, uh, a year and a half ago, first compared to the Chinese Cultural Revolution, you mentioned 
you also uh, compare it to the Cultural Revolution uh, in your well, piece. I was, yeah, it was really informed by Abe's article to the point that I found myself using his phrase, I think it was Abe's phrase, the great unraveling. And I hadn't even like remembered that that was his phrase. That's how much that article affected me. That was right. so, so influential that we created an, a, a, a category for great unraveling articles. You I was going to say, you need merch. You need merch, and that's how we'll know it's legit. Yeah, we have some merch, but um, the merch is mostly merch that, you know, is is it says, uh, you know, uh, crushing morosity and stuff like that. <laughs> not like not like merch that might help us. It's all sort of self-critical merch. But uh, I, I do want to talk about this quality because I think it's a very the point that you're trying to make or the point that you are focused on is that uh, the the advance on free speech and free thought and all of that um, has only been made possible by the caving of the high, of the leaders of the high water marks of our institutions. You don't talk about the times, but obviously very much informed by your experience at the times and moving forward to all these universities and things like that. The case that you really highlighted in the last week um, or the last uh, couple of weeks is the case of Professor Abbott at the University of Chicago, um, a mathematician who was going to give a mathematics lecture at MIT and was canceled because he questioned, he had questioned uh, whether or not people should be hired on the basis of their race or on the basis of merit. And that alone, you know, made him rife for cancellation and was and MIT withdrew its invitation for him to deliver this lecture. So you are you lay out cowardice uh, in a brilliant way in the piece. And your answer is that courage is the answer to cowardice. Can you sort of explain why you think why you think it was so easy for this to to march? Why people are so cowardly? Well, I think with. they're I think they're cowardly, you know, I'm not a psychologist, I'm not a sociologist. I'm sure that one of those types could give you a deeper answer about human nature, although I think has as has become obvious over the past few years, we are a herd-like species in a lot of ways. But I think that the reason that people are scared is not irrational. We're living through a technological revolution in which, every utterance, every sing-along to a five-second TikTok video when you're 13 years old, every tweet, every Facebook post, every everything is captured for eternity forever. And until we have some futurist that comes along and maybe it's Balaji Srinivasan or maybe it's someone else that creates a, a different way of us being on the internet, maybe it's avatars, maybe it's some blockchain technology, it's that's all above my pay grade. But until that happens, we are living in a reality, every single one of us with an internet connection, where everything is captured forever. And because of that thing, which I don't, it's so big, I don't even think we can fully grasp the change of it. Um, everyone is sort of in a state of permanent surveillance. And when you're Combine that with the fact that there is this ideological movement um, coming out of the left and coming out of the most elite, powerful, sense-making institutions in the culture, which are trying to sort of forcibly remoralize us and redraw the bounds of what is taboo and what is not, what is acceptable and what is not. Well, all of a sudden, people are thinking to themselves, five years ago, did I use the wrong pronoun once? Because I know I can lose my job after because of that. 
What about my parents? Did my parents ever do something bad? Because I know now in this world I can be judged by the sins of my parents and held accountable for, for that. What about, you know, maybe I didn't know the word, you know, Latinx. Maybe I said Hispanic. Maybe, maybe I could get in trouble for that. And on and on and on. And so the Dorian Abbott example is quite a powerful one because, you know, he said something, essentially, we should hire people on the basis of their merit that was considered and is still considered by most sane people, a completely legitimate and in fact, a moral position. But in this new moral framework, it's considered beyond the pale. So is insisting, you know, that there are differences between men and women. So is suggesting that, you know, defunding the police is a bad idea. There's there's new sort of um, orthodoxies that are added to the list every single day. And because the change is happening so rapidly and because the way that the, the new orthodoxy is enforced is by canceling people and smearing them and sort of causing a kind of social death, taking away their jobs, taking away their reputation, maybe even harming their family as collateral damage reputationally or professionally. Well, what's the rational choice? The rational choice, understandably, especially for people that, you know, have children, have a mortgage, need their job, is to say, you know what, I'm not dying on this hill. I'm going to shut up. I'm going to sign the statement. I'm going to put the whatever in the signature of my email. And I'm just going to go along because anything else is foolish. And they can point to the examples of what it means to stand up to it. Because often what it means to stand up to it is to get rolled. Now, my my suggestion is I believe that, you know, right now we can name the 10 professors or whatever that are standing up to this. What if tomorrow that became 2000 professors all at once? I think the entire culture would change. And so I think that is what I'm trying to get at is the self-silencing people in this country are the majority of the country. And what would it look like for all of us to sort of collectively step out of the closet, meaning <laughs> come out as sane? What would, how would that change the country and the culture? And that's what I'm trying to encourage people to do. Um, because once that happens in a more collective way, um, I really do believe that it is possible for, for things to change. The retro actions you're describing, <clears throat> the enforcement of these very fluid standards of propriety uh, for infringements uh, that, that weren't infringements at the time, imposing these standards that otherwise didn't make a ripple when they were made is, is self-destructive in a way that I think is, is um, heartening. You mentioned, for example, like Latinx, like did I use the word Latinx and didn't I? You can see in that the seeds of the destruction of this current hysterical moment because it's easy to envision a very near future in which that word is anathematized in part because it is genuinely offensive to people of Hispanic background, Hispanic origins. And if they were to mobilize to that effect, then the very people who perceive themselves to be, you know, so, uh, so tuned to cultural sensitivities would be forced to abandon this really bizarre construction that is basically an insult to anybody who speaks a romance language. So you can see that being anathematized really quickly. And then everybody who did the retroaction against people who use the word improperly doing a retroaction against Latinx and working themselves up into this into the self-destructive froth that I would be that I would very much welcome. Um, but it, you can also see that framework applied to half a dozen other precepts of the modern social justice movement. I mean, I wish that were true. 
I mean, I think I think we think it's true because I'm not saying that we live in a bubble of people who, you know, who who think sanely. Um, But I, I, you know, I'm struck by the fact that Michael Powell, the New York Times, um, did a piece on the Dorian Abbott controversy. And there is a quote here from the the chairman of the geosciences department at Williams College, Phoebe A. Cohen. Um, one of the many who expressed anger on Twitter at MIT's decision to invite Dr. Abbott to speak. So um, she says, Cohen, uh, uh, Powell says, Dr. Cohen agreed that Dr. Abbott's views reflect a broad current in American society. Ideally, she said, a university should not invite speakers who do not share its values on diversity and affirmative action what she was asked of the effect on academic debate. Should the Academy serve as a bastion of unfettered speech? And this is what Phoebe Cohen said, quote, this idea of intellectual debate and rigor as the pinnacle of intellectualism comes from a world in which white men dominated. This is the chairman of the geosciences at, I think, the most prestigious small liberal arts college in the United States saying that intellectual debate and rigor exist only as values in a world of white men and that this is not a value for her and for people like her. She's not just an ordinary schlep, you know, called, you know, Bernie is great with 34 followers on Twitter. She is a leading American scientist, (laughs) educator at a major American university. The debate part of that is what struck me. And it it points to something that I think Barry does. Barry, you did really well in your piece and you just alluded to earlier. And that's that there's nothing wrong. And conservatives, I think, get this wrong a lot. There is nothing wrong with the self-doubt that is prompted when you offend someone, right? To be like, oh, geez, I, yes. did I say something wrong? That's actually a good, useful human impulse to question whether what you're saying and doing is appropriate and, and what in the context you're in. I think what's been so worrisome is that that should lead to um, the questioning should lead to a discussion and a debate, not a definitive answer. And what I think the self-censorship comes in is that there is no space for people to say, well, is Latinx a good term? Let me, let's, let's talk about it, let's debate it. And that lack of debate is what is also being shut down at just the moment when people are questioning a lot of things, some of which I disagree with, but I would love to listen to the other side. And so that kind of empathy and willingness to have a discussion is over as well. John, in reference to your uh, initial question to Barry about why so many people have been drawn um, so quickly to all this stuff, um, I think part of the answer is, and and this is also something that Barry, you, you, you explained well in your piece at some point, that uh, large groups of Americans and others no longer cling to the systems and connections and institutions that had sustained us and reinforced a kind of um, shared uh, ethics and approach to the world and approach to one's fellow citizen, thinking of things like religion and community and family and, and the our lack of trust and interest in those things and institutions made so many people ripe for fully investing in this new paradigm. And Mm -hmm. so part of my fear about the question of how we get out of it is 
does there need to be some other, some next sort of all encompassing or largely encompassing paradigm or institution to, 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 so that we can sort of leap to in mass from this? Because this, this answers so many sort of questions uh, and, you know, scratches so many itches that were left behind by, by our, our changing sense of things. Yeah, I mean, this is where I think five years ago, I would have had a really different um, answer to this question, which would have been something like, you know, we need to reform the old institutions. You know, we can't live without them. This is a huge, you know, I, I, I grew up, I grew up this, the daughter of a commentary reader who became a neoconservative at Kenyon College. Like, I, I had no illusions about the biases of the New York Times, but I believe that the right way to approach that was to sort of go in and be my full self and sort of try and reform it from within. And I still think, you know, with institutions that are sort of trembling, but generally still solid or wanting to remain that way, they should be reformed from within. They should be sort of buttressed. Um, and that's worthwhile. But I think people are sort of deluding themselves about how dead a lot of these places already are because it's so painful to, and it's so scary to face that. But that's where I've arrived. And it's a much more radical position than where I was a few years ago. I really believe that the task ahead of us now is to build parallel institutions to the old ones that are rotted out and build ones that genuinely reflect the world as it is, genuinely reflect you know, liberal values broadly defined. It's an exhausting answer. It makes me tired to think about it. I'm living that answer right now. I've, I've, my back's about to get thrown out, but that's what I think we need to do. And I, I'm quite curious actually to hear from you guys about where you fall on the question of sort of reform or build anew. I, I, I don't think reform is possible in the, in the way that, in the way that uh, we think of it in you know, in sort of evolutionary terms, like, okay, there's a sort of crazy moment. This too shall pass. Saner heads will prevail. This is just a kind of spasm, a moral panic, and it's going to pass. And I, I don't want to sort of like, you know, turn you into a character on this, on this podcast, but your own experience, I mean, uh, is, a, is, is, is maybe the paradigmatic one, right? I mean, that is to say, you went to the New York Times from the Wall Street Journal. You, in part, left the Wall Street Journal uh, due to discomfort with the journal's willingness to kind of make a certain co common cause yes. with Donald Trump and the Trump administration that you and, and Brett Stevens, your colleague, and other were, were not willing to make. And you both sort of went to the New York Times with the idea, I think, at the Times that there was a kind of while there, while the ticket for entry might have been an understanding that Trump was not a defensible figure, that within the world of people thinking that Trump was not a defensible figure, there could, there could, there should, there needed to be a multiplicity of views, precisely in order to create a larger coalition that would say that there's a mm -hmm. path beyond this that isn't just uh, you know Trump's way or the highway. And then you ran into the buzzsaw of the Times' own evolution, its own political and economic and, and circulation and staffing revolution, such mm -hmm. that there were hundreds of new people working there, 
none of whom were raised in the world in which getting to the New York Times and being employed by the New York Times and following at least the kind of myth mythos of the New York Times meant that they had achieved the summit of their careers and that they were at the top of the top and they had struggled to get there and there were certain types of guardrails being at the top and having been seasoned and all this. You had a lot of people now in their 20s who came to the Times because they had web experience. They never even read the paper. They knew nothing about it. They didn't care about it. They read BuzzFeed more than they read the New York Times. And in their world and their college, their high school, everything like that, when you got upset about something that was unorthodox, um, your emotion about it was said to be very important. And that mm -hmm. emotion could be this emotion that you were frightened and that you were somehow being made unsafe with the great irony that your crucible, immediate crucible, came about as a result of the publication of an op-ed by Tom Cotton six months earlier that, that the staff said made them feel unsafe since Tom Cotton had said the president should call out the National Guard to make sure that cities don't burn right? Or mm -hmm. governors, whatever. The military, military figures should, should prevent the National from Guard. Burning. Yeah, yeah, the yeah. National Guard. And six months earlier, the New York Times, or maybe it was earlier than that, the New York Times had published a piece about how Afghanistan should face its future, written by the number two person in the Taliban, Al-Haqqani, somebody who had actually killed hundreds or helped arrange for the, arrange for the killing and murder of hundreds of people, including American soldiers, and who is now a senior figure in the Taliban government, while there are Americans behind the lines, of that, it was okay to publish Haqqani, well, not okay to publish it, Tom Cotton. It, it, well, that's because this is an extremely parochial worldview, and it's a luxury worldview. It, it's a worldview in which um, jokes by Dave Chappelle are literal violence, you know, uh, in which... Um, an op-ed causes literal lives to be put in danger in which, you know, calling someone by the wrong pronoun, you know, is is a capital offense and yet has, you know, absolutely nothing to say or in fact apologizes for things like, you know, female genital mutilation. So it's it's in a way it's it's an ideology that could only be embraced by people who are living in positions and in situations of unbelievable privilege, security, and safety. To watch as Netflix employees with paid family leave and amazing health care and probably stock options march with their little signs, you know, about how, you know, Dave Chappelle is, is causing them violence. I mean, it's, it's, it's the perfect emblem of this entire movement. But that's why I don't think you can rule out reform. There absolutely has to be parallel institutions that will take advantage of a backlash. But I do see a backlash materializing, an organic one, not, not an engineered one, a top-down one. But the primary manifestation that this thing takes and which your first, your most likely first encounter with this uh, ideology is going to be when something you like has been taken away from you 
were stigmatized. Or but Noah, then what happens? So, so let's like let's take ship. Let's keep going with Chappelle. So on Rotten Tomatoes, everyone has seen the kind of side by side amazing image of the critics, you know, rating it at 14% and the public rating it at whatever, 99%. Sure. So we know the public likes this special. We know they like Dave Chappelle and they, we know that they think it's ridiculous what's going on. But then what happens? What's the mechanism for the backlash? Right. Well, it's what you described as a mass outpouring of or at least a smaller influential outpouring that breaks through a breach and makes it safe for everybody else to come out and talk about this sort of thing too. I've spent a bunch of time talking to people on the left who resent the constraints, creatives who resent the constraints that are being imposed on them by a and, and a much larger host by a small vocal minority. Now they don't share any of my politics. They don't share my preference for extroverted foreign policy or reforming the social welfare system or any half a dozen other policy prescriptions, but they do share my frustration with a censorious moralizing cast that has assumed far more power than their numbers warrant. And all they need is a permission structure. All they need okay. is cover to say what they tell me in private and you in private. No, but that moves that moves to the point that Barry's making, which I think is the that you need institutions to take advantage of an organic no. phenomenon. Those people are the people Barry is talking to in the piece. Barry's saying, show courage, open up a mouth. What's the matter with you people? They're suppressing you. They're trying to make sure that you can't produce original work that will be important to people. They are trying to prevent you from publishing important academic work, from writing important articles, from speak or and just for an ordinary life, from talking at a school board meeting, from participating in a local election, however it is you want to slice it. And so be have courage. And this is I the problem that I think there, which is why I think we need new institutions is that's a big ask it, is. it turns out in human nature it's it's a huge it's actually i mean this is one of the great sort of things that i'm learning that i've been just so deeply wrong about which is i really thought most people were more independent minded and liked freedom more and it turns out that that's really wrong on a lot of levels and it's a, like a big existential um, shift that I'm experiencing right now. And one of the things, I, first of all, I, I want to acknowledge that it's a really big ask um, because even this morning, you know, I'm, I'm trying to commission a bunch of uh, comedians to weigh in on the Chappelle thing. That's why it's on my mind. And every single one of these comedians thinks what's being said about him and done to him is absolutely ridiculous. And yet they say to me, I don't want to sound like a coward, but I'm scared to put a target on my back. And they're not wrong because they see what happens when people do step out. And that's real. And that's why, you know, that's why I think that, and, and someone was sort of gently and I think rightly criticizing the piece that I wrote for you guys by saying, yeah, courage is good. Courage is an important ingredient. But what you also need, and maybe I didn't articulate this quite well enough, you need to be extremely anchored and rooted and articulating to yourself and to people that you trust around you about, frankly, what your life is about and what you're willing to sacrifice for. And there's also- If you don't have that, then you're never ever gonna get to the stage of being able to express courage and take the risk that that requires. And there's also a very practical hurdle here for people who are, I mean, in some sense, if you're a, if you're a well-known comedian, you're, you're luckier than say, uh, the woman or man who works in an office 
who wants to say at the water cooler, hey, I liked the Dave Chappelle um, special. There's a real, real world material price for ordinary people to pay, um, which is part of what makes it such a huge ask. And, you know, part of the, the, the permission structure Noah's talking about, um, it, it strikes me that this is the great tragedy of whenever uh, a large institution or a famous performer or public figure breaks under the pressure of the mob, because it wouldn't take that many of them in succession to stand up for what they truly think and believe. And they are the ones who can endure it. Yeah, sure, they would, there would be some fall off uh, you know, among their fans and they would get some pushback. But I'm talking about the people who are already, for example, multimillionaires, they have great success, they have fame, and they could, they could, in standing up for what they believe in, go on to have sort of army of support of millions, unlike regular people who will just sort of get fired and, and you know, shunned in their community. And, you know, if we are talking about asking them to take a kind of hit, but if they did, the cascading effect, the trickle-down yes. effect of, of what that would do for ordinary people who can't because they have things like mortgages, um, who, who, who are just too afraid to do it. Well, well, this is, this is, sorry, John, go ahead. No, no. I would just tell a story in this regard. Uh, 2003, in the run-up to the Iraq War, uh, I ended up having dinner with somebody who happened to be one of the biggest stars in the world. A very intelligent and very sort of autodidactic person who it turned out was a supporter of the decision to go into Iraq or was a supporter as we were moving inexorably toward it, had been reading the paper, understood, was able to name the, you know, the um, UN resolutions that Saddam Hussein had violated, all of this, taught, wanted to talk about this and that and the other thing. We're sitting at a very fancy restaurant at, at Balthazar uh, in Soho, um, having this conversation. And then he said to me, you, just, you, you can't, you, you understand that this is a very private conversation. And I said, well, I mean, of course I, and he said, you know, something like, look, I, I just want to make people laugh. Like my, that's what I do is I just want to make people laugh. And I, and I, I don't want to get into a position where I become a figure of controversy. That's not who I am or what I do or what I built my life doing. I, I'm telling you what I believe. I'm telling you what I think. But that's, that's not who, who I am. Now, I understand that we think about the Hollywood people as being, you know, they're all liberals and they're all doing, you know, they all give preachment and all of this. But basically, the world of popular culture is a world filled with people who aren't all that educated, who, you know, have been hired much of their life for their looks or because they have this particular ability to glow before a camera. If you don't write them a script, they don't know what they're talking about. And what they've, what they've inhered, what they've drunk in or what they've sucked in <laughs> is kind of the commons, the sort of the, uh, the common conventional wisdom of the world in which they travel and expecting them to be tribunes to be J.K. Rowling, who is, of course, you know, the most successful writer on the planet Earth and who is a writer and therefore who can be expected to say whatever it is that she wants to say. They're not equipped intellectually and they're not necessarily equipped emotionally. They just want to be loved. That's what but, they but, do. But that's why 
collectives and institutions and organizations are so important. That's they, they're, If you're asking someone to leap, you have to give them a lily pad to land on. And right now, that's what I think any of us who want to preserve sanity, I mean, it's deeper than even preserving liberalism, just sanity need to be doing. We need to be giving that to them. We need to be giving them language to use. We need to be creating new institutions, new organizations. I really believe that that's the name of the game. But I will say that the people that I truly have no patience for anymore, uh, you know, are the people with the wellsprings of literal capital, of social capital, of political capital, who are billionaires, you know, sometimes, or multi, multi, multi-millionaires who can afford, you know, if their city goes to shit, to get on a private plane and move to a new one. Those kind of people. Those kind of people who love to text me about what's going on in their kids' private school for which they're paying $70,000 a year or whatever. Stand up. Stand up. I find it just morally reprehensible that the people that are, and maybe maybe there's something to this too, that I guess I felt, and this is another place where I was just so wrong, that getting to the top allowed you the privilege or the standing to have the freedom to say whatever the hell you want. You know, that's why they called it FU money. But actually it's the opposite. It's the people that are 19 and 20 years old who are exhibiting more courage these days than the people at the top. And maybe that's always been true and I just had it totally wrong. I mean, look, the whole point about institutions is that when when the world was governed by institutions, institutions had not only obligations, but um, uh, they 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 relied on pre-existing standards that were uh, that were as is true of what we talk about, the rule of law the rules have to be clear to everybody and they have to be observed impartially by everybody and you're supposed to know them. Of course, the great secret of wokeness is that crimes are often determined to have been crimes after the fact. Correct. And then people say, I mean, I was thinking of the case of Alexi McCammond, uh, who was hired to be the editor of Teen Vogue, it triggered the, she was 27 years old, triggered the rage and jealousy of other journalists who went back, dug through her past, and discovered that at the age of 17, as a freshman at the University of Chicago, she had made some joke about an Asian. As a 17-year-old first-year student in her first quarter at the University of Chicago, 10 years later is forced to step down by Condé Nast, which had thought that it had a gimme in hiring Alexi McCammond and would get praised for hiring Alexi McCammond because she was an African-American woman. So that was one of the reasons that they hired her. And then I think in part, they're like, well, you know what? You're no good to me now. Like, I'm not going to get I'm not getting any extra points for my two for affirmative action credit here. So go away. Let me find somebody else who isn't going to cause me this kind of trouble. And under those circumstances, everybody stands potentially convicted at any point. If you're Alexi McCammond, uh, you, you, if you're anybody who followed that story in journalism and you're a young journalist, either you're going to go back through your, your social media history and literally delete everything that you've ever said 
But it's deeper Which than you that. should. It, yeah, it's, go yeah, ahead. It's beyond just deleting your bad tweets because who knows what bad is. It's like I talk to middle school students who are telling me without necessarily using this language, but that they're self-censoring in middle school. Like that's the part that I don't think people are fully appreciating is, you know, you just need a few of these instances to send a powerful message to everyone right. watching. And the message has been, has been received and it's clear in all the polls, you know, which some of which I cite in the piece, but it's, it's really, I, I don't think I can overstate how deeply it's penetrated into the lives of young people who are thinking right. to themselves, if I, if I have one a chance of getting into that private school, like I better start t tweeting the right things <laughs> right now in seventh grade. I mean, it is so dark and insidious. Yeah. Well, I mean, so that's why I'm not sure that the institutions that we have can be saved. I mean, you're talking about building new ones. And by the way, some of this happens organically. Uh, we were talking before we started the podcast. You were on Joe Rogan's podcast. So who is Joe Rogan? Joe Rogan was a stand-up comedian uh, who was on host, yeah. who was for, for on the Fear Factor. And before he was on the Fear Factor, he was on a show called News Radio, which was you know sort of like a workplace sitcom in the late '90s. Um, according to the data that surfaced when was it Spotify uh, sort of bought the rights to his podcast? I can't remember which yeah. service bought the rights to his it podcast. Was, it's Spotify. It was more than he, 100, million. he was. There were 100 mil, 190 million downloads a month of Joe Rogan's podcast, which is, I don't know, sometimes it's three hours long a day or something like that. 190 million downloads a month. You Our friend Ben, so, right. ben so Shapiro. Why? why? Right. But these these institutions are being built around your common sense substack is an effort or and it's organic, which is important because what people have said to me, we've published pieces about this, a couple of pieces about this over the course of my editorship. You know, we need a new university. What would the new university look like? Well, first, you would have to do this. You'd need buildings. So you'd have to have this and then you build this department, and all that. And you look at it and you think, well, that can never happen. Like this is a 10 billion dollar investment to create one college that has a library and function dorms and this and that and everything you, it'll never happen like or it'll have there'll be one case of it and in fact the domino's pizza guy built a catholic university in florida called ave maria that's like the only case i can think of but joe rogan can start a podcast that organically turns into something that he sells for a hundred million dollars and then joe rogan to take can take that money and donate to a new university and I'm on the board of one that's going to be announced in the next few weeks. So okay. I'll come back on and talk okay. about that. Okay. So, right. So all I'm saying is that these, these new institutions have to be created organically. The problem but, with your, uh, let me just finish. Cause I know yes. I'm, 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 I'm uh, monopolizing here, but the problem with the courage, with the declaration that our, our escape mm -hmm. is courage is that um, expecting ordinary people who have to put food on the table to display the kind of courage that will get them fired. Now, right now, that's not so terrible because we're in a job labor shortage and you can lose a job and get another job pretty easily. But for the last 20 years, that hasn't been the case. And people have been terrified to lose their jobs for 20 in a way that was really different from when I was growing up. People were, were you know, incomes weren't growing. Workplaces were shrinking. Opportunities were shrinking. It was very frightening. Uh, and terrifying to do that. But, you know, expecting people who live, you know, basically paycheck to paycheck to threaten their existences 
is very difficult. So what, it's a different thing when you are Jeffrey Goldberg, the contemptible editor of The Atlantic, who hires Kevin Williamson knowing who Kevin Williamson is and then fires him the day before he starts because there's a staff revolt and he is, you know, kowtowing to his, you know, idiot billionaires patron uh, who's like, well, we can't have a person like that on staff. So it's like, you know, you don't get to play with other people's lives like this, with Kevin's life. You, Jeffrey Goldberg, unlike other people, unlike these people who are paycheck to paycheck, you, as a matter of intellectual honesty, are obliged to resign if you are forced to fire Kevin Williamson for being the person you hired him to be. If you don't quit over that, the way you, Barry, quit over the insistence that, or you know, what you took to be whatever insistence was being made that you were supposed to kowtow and make a public, uh, you know, apology for your actions and your views. He's required to have courage, but yeah, that middle schooler—it's a little, you know, that middle schooler—it's a little. No, it's a we big should ask. Yeah, my pe yeah. yes, I, I my piece is not directed at the it's middle true. school. It's true, I know it's it is. It's directed at the principal of the middle school. It's directed at the editor of the magazine. It's directed at the head of the university, the head of the studio, the people that actually have the power to shape the, the the climate inside the institution to make it an environment that is free and not based on fear. That's who oh. it's directed to, and I I completely agree. We shouldn't expect, we shouldn't ex. 12-year-olds and 13-year-olds should not be expected to exhibit courage like this. It's from the people that have the standing and who are spineless in the face of this ideological revolt. I'm sorry, Christine. No, ahead. I was just going to say, but for this to work, the optimistic way to, to see this future, it, it, it's going to require something that, again, not to, not to uh, criticize my own team here, but it's going to require conservatives to do something they're not generally happy with doing. They love Ave Maria University because it's a closed system, right? But in order for a genuine, powerful cultural institutions to develop to as alternatives to the ones that exist now that have gone woke, you have to bring old school liberals in who disagree with you on a lot of moral, cultural, and social issues. You need those people and, and not to field of dreams this, but if you build it, I do think those middle school principles will come. I think the students will display courage simply in their consumption habits. They will go to those sites. The, Joe Rogan's listeners are not just a bunch of crazy right-wingers. It is a broad spectrum of people um, from different class and uh, you know geographical backgrounds. That is his power, is the sheer number of people who go to him to listen to interesting topics they might not have heard of before. He doesn't, he doesn't drape himself in the, in the sort of elite class distinctions, either subtly or, or uh, in a straightforward way, like a lot of our other institutions do, but we need, we need coalitions with groups that, that traditionally in culture wars, we haven't been good at making peace with. I'd go a little further. Um, I, I don't think for, for this to work, I don't think it will come from conservatives at all, actually. Um, I think I think it all has to come from somewhere within the, the liberal sphere, because conservatives on this question about woke wokeness have been there already, um, and I think their being involved in this in the in the in the sort of the fight for liberal souls adds um, an unnecessary wrinkle. I think in the process, I think it's I think it's a, I think it's about what happens within liberal present day liberalism itself um, that that brings about the change. And that's Barry, can I ask you to get a little autobiographical here, because I think what Abe and Christine are talking about is you. 
You, though, Precisely. You came and, from and, the Wall and, Street and, Journal. And a few so you were at the Wall Street Journal. As I've as long as I've known you, I'm not sure that I would ever have characterized you as a conservative. Uh, you didn't characterize yourself as a conservative, I would say. And that that's not you were an you were an activist on issues that were deeply important to you that aligned you with the right, in particular Israel, because the left, particularly on campuses, was moving so far radically in the other direction. But you would not have described yourself as a conservative, right? No. I've always been, de I mean, I've always been described from the, from the time I started opening my mouth when I was at Columbia on the issue of Israel, I, I was called every horrible name you could possibly be called. So I, I've long since given up trying to like play defense on what my proper identity should be. I think that every online survey I've ever taken would list, you know, categorize me as someone on the center left, maybe the center. Um, definitely when I was at the Wall Street Journal, they did not think that I was a conservative. So yeah, but I think that because I'm a liberal and because I generally sort of swim in those waters, I that also meant that I, to mix a metaphor, was like in the teeth of the ideology. Like I saw what it was about and I saw the way it was politicizing everything, even relationships and love and art and music. And I just saw the totalizing aspect of it. And for whatever reason, I think it's a personality thing. Like, I hate that. I, I really, really, really hate that. And I don't know. I think it's also being Jewish, to be honest. I really think that there is something about being Jewish that made me allergic to this and smell it maybe before some other people who came around to the view. Um, but as for, you know, going to what Christine was saying about strange new alliances, I mean, guys, like I published Glenn Greenwald on my Substack the other day, and he's defending me against people that are trying to fat shame me on Twitter yesterday. It's a strange new world. Now, obviously, I couldn't disagree with him more vehemently on some issues like Israel that are incredibly dear to me. Um, but I also see his positioning and Matt Taibbi's on this as being right. And so I think it's an important moment to to say I am willing to sort of not lay down arms on the other issues, but make alliances with people that are sounding sane on this one, at least for the time being. And I, I hope that I'm curious, actually, but I think that you guys would agree with me. I know that you've well, covered Abe, that Abe's on the podcast. Peace. Abe's uh, Yes, This is a Revolution piece, I think, ends ended very much on this note right abe you would yeah yeah i think I, I said and i continue to think this even more so i said i think the something like the the most hopeful spot on the horizon um is that is the spot occupied by barry and a few others uh, it, it is this is going to come down to this is going to be on the shoulders of those liberals who who look at because they're in some sense, as I put it in the, in, in the piece, you know, because conservatives have been saying these things um, for a while, saying other things that liberals won't agree with, but, but you know, in terms of the anti-PC position, um, you're, we're already preaching to the choir on the right. It, uh, it is the liberals, especially those with a large readership, um, like, like you, Barry, when you write about these things and you write about them so well, they have the force of epiphany 
on uh, it's hilarious. liberals who read I, right as if yeah, you know so, and, and it would be easy for you know conservatives are, can get like outraged like what's the big deal i've been uh, saying this for 20 years what, but that's not important the important that's thing my is, dad's reaction right exactly I mean, no but it's it's just so funny because i went on i went on brian stelter's show on cnn last weekend and i thought it was fine and i said things that i always say and that i've been saying for a while and it was like oh my god it like total virality why because of exactly the thing you're saying is that in the context and the environment of cnn me saying things like you know violence is violence and silence isn't violence has the aura of epiphany um but that's fine i'm, I'm right. happy to take on the new subscribers but you know that that appearance was 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 fascinating because uh, Stelter played this game with you where he said, you say that they don't allow people to say X, Y, or Z. Who's stopping you? Who's stopping you from saying whatever it is you want to say? And it's like Michelle Goldberg in the New York Times who who then tried to codify how many cases of silencing there had been on campuses. And she came up with a number around 487 and then said, well, that's not a lot, really. I mean, there are tens of thousands of people on college campuses. 487 cases of having your speech suppressed is not a lot. It's just a little bit of treason, right? It's no. <laughs> and, 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 and that's where, you know, uh, it's funny, though, by the way, because even Michelle Goldberg, so Phoebe Cohen, I quoted earlier today, saying this thing about how intellectual rigor and debate, you know, are, are basically some kind of white male privilege. Actually, this morning said on Twitter, well, that's more, that was that's mortifying. Like, it turns out even for her, there are things you shouldn't say because like but then but then she'll find a way i'm not the, yeah. her or whoever to like now okay now that's going to be acceptable you know at a certain point it's like stop being shocked it's really hard to say that because there's like a new low that we experience every day and it's hard not to be shocked and in a way it's like we should be shocked because it deserves shock because it's wrong um but it's kind of like at this point we got to get over the shock. This is right. what it is. It's going to continue to eat liberal institutions and good people. Um, and so now that we've seen it, now that we know the nature of it, like, let's build new things in the face of it. Let's build the things we want to see in the world. Because we could spend all day grieving for the old and, you know, sending little links around to our WhatsApp and signal groups being like, have you seen this? Have you seen this? Have you seen this? Or we can just say, yeah, we've seen it because we've seen the story a thousand times. Now I think we've seen enough. Time to move on. Well, what you're trying to build isn't just institutions, but a counterculture because you're talking about a dominant culture now in institutions and in entertainment, media, academia. And what you're trying to build is something sexy that attracts like minds and that makes uh mocking these people something that's cool just a, a cool thing to do it makes you a hit person and that's where comics in my view become the instruments of this sort of backlash and why the dave Chappelle thing i think is far more momentous than we recognize yet in part because it has the capacity to mobilize an entire industry of people whose job it is to make mockeries of this kind of self-seriousness in what funnels them towards one particular direction 
that the, we the forces so of woke we... might resent once it materializes. See, I, I, I'm exactly on the opposite side of you here. Me too. I, See, I, I can't... think the Chappelle story is no sane comic is going down that path. The, the world of the comedian in the United States is framed by a desire and a wish right now to get an hour long special on Netflix. They ain't going there because it's one thing to be Dave Chappelle and to See, and to be the most popular comedian in the world. But if you were a nobody, nothing and you're trying to get on stage or catch a rising star and you're going to get booed and then no agent is going to want to represent you and no one is going to buy your special. I think that's the end of your career. That's not counterculture. That's mass culture. Yeah. See, I think it just leads to the increasing. I never know if this word's right. Bifurcation. Does that mean cutting into which is like, look at Tim Dillon's career. Okay. Tim Dillon's never going to get a special on Netflix, at least right now, but he's killing it. He's hugely popular. Like they're just I just think it's going to continue to be kind of two worlds the right. wrong think thought crime people that are actually representing the mainstream and then if I can use like a Hunger Games reference like the capital people and like their luxury beliefs and their little fun new word that they use to describe things and the little fun world of like fantasy they create. I mean, the kind of stasis you're describing people. is just not what even you're living through. I mean, you're living through a remarkable dynamism around this issue and a shifting of very fluid exactly. cultural no, that, landscape. There's that's, no settling. See, that, that's where my optimism comes from, though. My optimism comes from the fact that I've not put out a single ad. If you type my name into Google, this is sub, <laughs> Substack's got a long way to go, go, guys. There's no discoverability. The mm -hmm. last thing that comes up for me in Google News is the New York Times. Okay. Yeah, again, so, because this is yet, what you're describing are very high stakes for no, engaging no, no, in this what, on our terms, where the stakes would be lower if engaging in it didn't make you a heretic or, a heretic or apostate. It made you hip. It made you attuned to cultural sensitivities that have a broader no, purchase than even the executives at these networks understand. I'm not sure I understand what you're saying. I believe it is the counterculture. It's just... It's the counterculture, but Noah, the problem is, and this goes to the courage issue, people don't want to be in the counterculture. You, it is a certain type of personality that craves, either craves a counterculture or accepts, as I think is the case with Barry, that the world of the larger culture is toxic or, or, or suicidal for them to attempt to make a home in. But for your ordinary person who has been sitting at home since he was five years, listening to comedy records, wants to be a comedian, wants to do well, and wants to be as famous as the people that he loved, Lenny Bruce is not the model. I you know, disagree. the model, you, okay, go ahead. No, I just think that there's different kinds of comedians. Right. Like there's the Chelsea Handlers. Okay, you want to be like that? You go clearly in one way. But Joe Rogan's leading a pretty awesome life. And if you're a 19, 20, 21 year old and you're thinking, I want to be like that, there is a path for you to be successful. It's Absolutely. Just not, yeah. Absolutely. But that's where the building of the new institutions comes in. The problem is that there is a bridge time. There's a bridge time. Agreed. And the Dave Chappelle, the effort to suppress an, an unsuppressible person, 
Dave Chappelle cannot be suppressed for one very simple reason, not just that he's successful, not just that he's beloved, not just that he's, you know, like at the top of his craft. He is somebody who walked away from 50 million dollars, 50 million dollars in 2003 because he said, I don't want to live in your system and Mm -hmm. was like invisible for more than a decade went away because he didn't want to be part of a cog in the comedy central mainstream comedy machine. And he returned entirely on his own terms. The problem is that there could only be one of those people at any given time. Really? You can't silence JK Rowling because JK Rowling is the most successful author on earth. They tried and a different person other than JK Rowling might not have been able to survive the assault on her. But that doesn't mean that, you know, a wannabe J.K. Rowling can dare try to be J.K. Rowling without risking the dreams that she had as a kid to be J.K. Rowling. And that's where the courage problem comes in, because... They don't want to have to be courageous. Like nobody want. It's like Aristotle's definition of courage is uh, doing the right thing to die nobly in a war. I mean that that is actually in the Nicomachean Ethics. Like uh, courage is not recklessness and foolhardiness. It's not like charging into battle unprepared with no armor. And then getting yourself killed. That's recklessness and foolishness. Nor is it standing on the sidelines while your city is looted. It is persevering in the face of danger in a way that might lead to a death. And that death will be noble. And it will be noble because you were courageous. And it is by definition something that cannot be expected of people because it requires qualities of moderation in a weird way that people often don't have. I just I want to make a point about this, the culture counterculture uh, debate. I think part of the challenge here is that there are so many millions of people out there who actually see what we're talking about, the culture and the counterculture completely inverted. Mm-hmm. They think that their being involved in wokeness makes them part of the counterculture, that the dominant culture is this stiff buttoned up one that has not recognized individual identities and that, you know, it's that whiteness. Before the, it's white, you know, white privilege and, and Donald right. Trump and all yeah. the rest of it. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Um, and this applies, you know, to comedians, too. I mean, I, I was reminded of this uh, when the great Norm Macdonald died recently. Someone put up a, a, a clip of him judging some talent show and a comic got up uh, before him and made a series of jokes, anti-Christian jokes. And the judge sitting next to Norm said that was very brave. And, and Norm said, uh, I don't think that was brave at all. You know, every, every, every other comedian in the world makes, the, makes a j- joke at the, the expense of, 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 the, of the Christian faith, you know, and you don't know anything about it and all the rest of it. And I think this is why Barry's point about seeing more courage among young Americans than established older Americans um, this explains it partially because I think young people, and I'm not into youth politics at all, but I but I'll <laughs> give them credit for this. Um, young people are in a better position to recognize what is truly the counterculture um, yes. than than adults trying to put their finger on what it woke, is. Woke is corporate. Yes. 
exactly right. It so, just is. So I so look forward to the, the, that younger generation getting older um, and, and, and going, if, moving through the world with the understanding that the counterculture is, is the one that pushes back against wokeness. Well, they'll try to suppress it, which is what you do with countercultures. Like you try to suppress them and, and the common, you know, the, this. And that's what makes been, it sexy. No, but <laughs> that's for what six, makes it attractive. No, but for 60 years, there was no danger to a counterculture figure. Like once it, there was a time when Lenny Bruce was hauled into jail for obscenity, right? That stopped. And then suddenly being in the counterculture was something where you violated all the rules and the regulations and the strictures. And nobody came after you for it, but but the Blue Noses and the Mrs. Grundy's. The world of the counterculture we're talking about literally is a world in which they come after you. That's what cancellation is. I mean, Dorian Abbott obviously was kind of a naive. I mean, which is understandable. This no, isn't his field. No, he wasn't. Oh, he wasn't Th a knife. Okay, that's I'm sorry. That's what's so inspiring okay. about him. Okay. Is that he was watching he's this he's the geophysicist that we we're talking about before he i'm sorry i called him a mathematician that was stupid go fine. ahead sorry yeah he, he was um watching all of this for a while and told me you know because we've been corresponding for a while said he really thought hard about standing up for years before he did he made the choice to do so Right. That's what I think is so amazing about his example. He didn't like stumble into it. Yeah, and to be fair to him and to institutions, not to not to not to trumpet my my alma mater, but um, he is a professor at the University of Chicago, and President Zimmer of the University of Chicago is one of the two or three leading figures in universities in the United States who has been at you know at the forefront of defending free speech. So he was he was cosseted. Yes, he was. Or he was surrounded in some fundamental sense in an institution in which he knew that when push really came to shove, the guy at the top was going to have his back, which is something that nobody knows anywhere, practically. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's part of the story here. So it's a wonderful article. Please, please read it. Uh, please go and be one of the 375 million people who have now subscribed <laughs> to Barry's Substack. Um, it's barrywise.substack.com. We also have a podcast called Honestly with Barry Weiss, which okay. is the Honestly Pod. Um, uh, Barry's sister, uh, uh, Susie, is a hilarious writer. Watch for yes, her. I don't even know where she's writing. Susie Me? Lee Weiss. She's, 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 she's working with, with me. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, she's uh, she's she's a uh, She's a, a a superstar in the making. So she's that's the, she's a the best very lucky of the thing. Your wife, uh, uh, Nellie Bowles, has a fantastic Substack on converting to Judaism that I commend to everybody. I, is that NellieBowles.substack or does it have another? That is chosenbychoice.substack.com. And she yeah. is also now um, she has been officially liberated. She no longer works at the New York Times as a few, as of a few weeks ago. So look for her writing lots of places but including common sense i mean the whole journey of you and nelly itself we could do we, there, there should be a mini podcast someone series wanted, like someone I'm approached wondering. us to write a show and anyway like, it's kind oh, of an amazing not. it's kind of an amazing an amazing I will story always, i will always be grateful to for the to the new york times for that okay. that is where i and, met her 
anyway, so uh, her Substack is great. Your Substack is great. We don't have a Substack. We have a podcast <laughs> and we have a roast coming up on November 22nd with Rabbi Mayor Sully Soloveitchik. Please go to uh, commentary.org slash roast 21 to find out more. Barry, thank you very much for joining us. And for Abe, Noah, and Christine, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.